Morning, church. My name is Pastor Scott. So glad to be with you here as we continue in this series on Psalm 23. Uh, as Heather and Abrielle just read for us, uh, we're nearing the finish line. This will be verse 5 today. And then on Friday evening, we'll have Good Friday services at the Green Lake location where we'll go over the first part of verse 6. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And next Sunday, Easter Sunday, I'll get a chance to preach this final concluding statement. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We'd love to have you join us Friday night at 6.38 at the Green Lake location, and certainly for Easter Sunday, 8, 9.30, or 11. Uh, we join in the middle of a uh, high school production. We're getting ready to do Little Shop of Horrors. Um, so it's just the fun missional opportunity we get to be uh, being in a high school. My daughter was looking at these two doors. My eight-year-old said, it looks like that's the like door of Jesus, and this is the door of Satan. I'm like... <laughs> So we got that going for us this morning. Uh, I'm really glad to be with you. I will also confess I'm just not feeling 100% today. Uh, and uh, I feel like I'm going to be preaching about enemies. I feel like uh, the, the enemy would like me to be less than excited in what I'm sharing with you. And I will not take the bait this morning because this message this morning on verse 5 of Psalm 23 is an important reminder that our cup overflows, not in the absence of enemies, but in the presence of every difficulty we face. Let me say a prayer and we'll begin. Lord Jesus, thank you for this Sunday. We thank you for Palm Sunday as a reminder that you come in such a way that causes great fanfare and excitement. And also, God, that you come into our lives in ways that are surprising and often can be disappointing. We know the Palm Sunday irony is that Jerusalem was worshiping the way they thought they were receiving an earthly king, and yet they didn't realize they were anointing a heavenly one. And so God, we, we pray now that you would open our eyes and our ears, and mostly our hearts. Help us understand the enemies that we have been facing. And Lord, we, we pray that we would be a church aligned under the fullness that you long to pour into us, that we would be more like you. In your name we pray, amen. Psalm 23, 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Your sermon title this morning is From Full Plates to Full Cups. And the subtitle will be Facing Our Enemies with Confidence. I don't know if this word enemies, we don't use it very, it's a pretty big word, pretty strong word. We don't use that word a lot in our modern context. But for me, when I think about an enemy, I, there's like certain person comes to mind. His name is Chris Woods. And he was my enemy when I was in high school. I grew up in the 90s when uh, torturing kids wasn't called bullying. It was just called high school. So, like, we would have to, like, pass through this thing called Social Corner. And they, we were 13 and 14 years old as freshmen, as ninth graders, going into the high school. And these guys, they were, like, men, you know, 18-year-old men. And they would, like, grab us and, like, tape us to, to like, the pole in the middle of Social Corner. And... You know, things like brownies and swirlies and getting canned. Like, this was our working vocabulary because this stuff was real. Uh, and if you didn't grow up in the 90s, you're like, wow, I'm glad those days have passed. We, as a freshman football team, would have to cross the varsity field to go down to the outer pasture where they let the 14-year-olds practice. And so we would kind of walk nervously across the varsity field. And many days we would not be tormented. But once in a while, the older guys would play a sport of attack the frosh guys. So we'd be halfway across and we would just hear these thundering footsteps with 17 and 18-year-old guys just thundering down on us. And we would run our little lights off, our legs off. And they would get us and smash us. I mean, it was painful. 
And this guy, Chris Woods, man, he was the biggest enemy of them all. He was, he was a senior my sophomore year, a junior my freshman year. And though all the upperclassmen like, unlike, disliked many of us younger people, Chris especially disliked me especially. He, he disliked me the most. He hated me. And he made high school incredibly difficult. He picked on me ceaselessly. And, you know, it's really not, if you've been bullied, if you have experiences in the workplace, in school, where someone is really preying upon you, you know it can impact your entire ability to be present in a space where you don't even want to be there. It never got that bad with Chris, but I knew he was always out to get me. And one day, in particular, during my sophomore year, I, uh, I, I had this 1984 Chevy Silverado stepside pickup truck, dark blue, Roll bar, 33-inch tires. Like, it was, it was kind of sweet, and I loved it. And I drove this truck with confidence, even though I wasn't very confident at 15, now 16 years old. And uh, this one Saturday, my buddy and I got together, and we cleaned my car all day. We used to wax our cars in the old days. So we, like, waxed our car. Wax on, wax off, like Daniel LaRusso and Karate Kid, I don't, we, no one waxes cars anymore. But we waxed my truck all day. And so Monday morning, I rolled into the parking lot. I felt like a champ. This thing was sweet. Car, you know. Well, Chris Woods and some other seniors were having, you know, kind of some sort of big breakfast together. And as they walked out of the gym where they had been gathered, they had big full plates of leftover breakfast. And Chris saw my truck. He saw that it looked pristine, like a freshly waxed vehicle looks. And he grabbed these big plates of food and he walked over and he dumped all this food onto my truck, on the hood, on on the roof, into the tailgate, which would have been bad enough. But when I walked down at lunch to like kind of, hey, yeah, I was kind of excited, clean my car, show my buddies we're going to go off campus for lunch. And to my horror, there was what felt like a hundred people standing around my truck dying laughing because all this food was on top of my newly cleaned truck and then dozens and dozens of seagulls and crows eating, scratching, clawing, pooping, and people were dying laughing. And though I said it was really about my vehicle I was worried about, it was really my pride. I felt so angry and so humiliated. Like he took this full plate and he just used it as another opportunity to make me feel tiny. And Trisha, I don't know what full plates you're dealing with this morning. We use that as a euphemism of like, man, I just feel maxed. The plate is full. I'm busy. I'm stressed. I'm distracted. My plate is full. I, I feel like emotionally, you know, distant from God or from others. Like my plate is full. I don't know what plate is fullness you're dealing with this morning. But there is a word for you in Psalm 23 verse 5. That you have everything you need, not in the absence of enemies, but in the presence of it. And in the presence of your enemies, your God has set a table for you. And your God wants you to understand that your cup overflows. You have enough joy, enough hope, enough spirit into any challenge you face. So from full plates to full cups, we get this look into second or into Psalm 23, verse 5. The allegory or the metaphor kind of shifts in verse 5. We've been in a shepherd sheep, you know, by the stream, you know, into the valley. But in verse 5, it shifts. You prepare a table before me. Where all of a sudden it's not a sheep and a shepherd, but a king and, and a person being fed at a table. And David said, The table of the Lord is set, a banquet has been given. And so the result of this provision is right in the fullness of God's presence 
in the challenge of everything we face, we might say, my cup is full. And so our big idea this morning is the presence of every difficulty we face, God's presence has anointed you to see that you have everything you need for his glory. So we'll just look piece by piece through all of verse 5 here because it's going to be helpful for us to identify from the place of enemies speaking into our life and causing distraction into a new place of provision that our cups would be full. Let's look at the first part in your outline, prepared. God has prepared a table before me. God has prepared a table for me. God has already worked before me, says David. He's making a table for me. In ancient Israel, the table was communal, was collaborative. It was for a, for a, a great banquet. But in verse 5 of chapter 23, David says, you know, this king has set a feast for me alone. I, I'm dining with the shepherd. I get to have a generous and magnificent meal with a host for me. For, for me who's hungry, for me who needs uh, protection from my fear. And David seems to be saying when we're provided for at a table like this, it should breed confidence that destroys fear. In, in faith, we're called to believe that God is prepared in advance to protect us. That the table of God's provision is open for us. You know, we, we sometimes we, we get caught up into this idea of like, well, I know God loves me, but I'm not sure God likes me. But here in verse 5 of Psalm 23, we have this picture of us as a follower of God, that God likes us so much that he wants to spend time with us. He wants to dine with us. He wants to sit at a table with us and hear our heart. And therefore, we're not just trying to behave in such a way that God might not be angry with us, but that we're actually trying to put ourselves into the presence of God. God, remind me that your table is open, that you long to spend time with me. And so when we open the Bible and we read our scripture or we pray or we spend time in community with other believers challenging and encouraging each other, these are fellowship opportunities to put us at the table of God himself. There's this great story in David's life, David kind of biographically, whereas David finally became king. He was anointed, remember, in 1 Samuel. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. I am number eight. David was the least qualified, the youngest of the tribe of Jesse, and yet he is anointed with olive oil. He's anointed as the king, but there's a gap. He's anointed, and then he's sent back to the field. There's a gap. He's anointed, and then Saul, he goes and works for Saul. There's a gap. He's anointed, and then Saul wants to kill him. There's a gap. He's anointed, and then Saul chases him into the wilderness. There's often a gap from being anointed and living into a place with no enemies. This is David's story biographically. And so it's not till 2 Samuel when David becomes king, and he says, you know, are there any, are there any offspring of, of the former king? And historically in the nation of Israel, when a king would take over, they would find the offspring and they would wipe them out. Because in this day and age, you know, it would often be a child of a previous king that would want to start a coup, want to, you know, take power from a new king. And so a new king would alleviate any power struggles by literally just decimating anyone from, the, from a former ruling family. But in 2 Samuel 9, David asks, is there any children left from the tribe of Saul? And there's one, Mephizabeth, who was lame from the time he was a child. He, he can't walk. He has no movement in, in either foot. He's the grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan. David goes and finds him in 2 Samuel 9, and David says to Mephizabeth, Do not fear. You shall eat at my table regularly. 
But Mephizabeth was, was in his lameness, in his former status as part of the ruling party. He was sure that if David finds him, he'll probably be killed. And actually, this is a picture of radical grace. That David says, even though you don't deserve it, you're going to eat at the king's table. And then he ate with him the rest of his life. It's a picture of God's grace from Christ to us. We are in that picture of 2 Samuel. We are Mephizabeth. We have been granted access to a table we could never achieve on our own. And we are invited into spending time with Jesus. Not because we've earned or attained or achieved anything, but because of the radical grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of this grace, we become different people. And because of this grace, we no longer believe that our past has disqualified us. Because of this grace, we, we stop believing the doubters that because we've made mistakes in the past, we're not qualified for future glory. The king of kings wants to have dinner with you. Like That's a beautiful picture, right? God wants to spend time with you. Not hoping that you'll somehow behave in a way fitting of a king's table, but he just wants to be with you. That's a really, really powerful picture for us. I prepared a table before me. We are for God because he is for us. And then as a church, as believers in Jesus, we want to paint a picture into the world that God is trying to do a new thing. We paint a picture into the world that God is at work redeeming things. We paint a picture in the world that even though our life on our own would be broken, that we've been invited to dine with Christ. And so our job is to make Christ more alive in us that the world would see us. So that's why, like this summer, we decided to have breakfast feast, you know, a, a table set before people. And we set up tables in the parking lot of the junction in June, July, and August. We partnered with another church. We literally had a breakfast feast, and we had volunteers come. We, we've been serving breakfast every week or every other week to people on Aurora since before the junction opened. This is the junction over on Aurora and 160, what, third or something? And the volunteer said, we don't want to just feed people and then send them off. We want to invite them to table fellowship. So they, they brought tons of food. And then invited people on the street to sit and have a great breakfast. And then someone shared a story of transformation, of going from addicted to clean. And then someone else gave a testimony of how Jesus Christ it longs to transform each and every one of us. All while we're sitting around the tables with each other. And it was beautiful. Like we, because God is for us, we can be for other people's transformation. That's the work the church is called into. Not where we just kind of pull away and we kind of hide from any kind of conflict in the world, but we say that we believe that God is for us. We want to paint a picture of God's redemption into all the world. And so that's the work the church is doing now, even in the last week. In the last week in this church, I need to help paint a picture of what, what you are doing in the name of Christ. Like I, I have the best seat in the house because I get to know everything that's going on. So often people have no idea what's going on. We have families in this church which are trying to show, paint a picture of God's radical love by, by hosting foster kids in, in our community. We now have four families doing that. And one family had a need to have their bathroom remodeled. And so we have volunteers in this church that are helping them remodel their, their bathroom so they can host foster families. We have a team being prepared to send to Nicaragua to be a blessing and be the lead of all six Bethany locations. North will be the lead in a partnership with Agros International, coming and partnering with the in-country field staff to say, you know, we're painting a picture of God's redemption. Not as the healers ourselves. No, that's Jesus. But we're, we're painting a picture of transformation. 
There was a reconciliation and justice event Tuesday night where leaders from all six locations about how do we be reconcilers for Christ? How do we be reconcilers around race and saying that God's, God's body is people of every race, tribe, and tongue for his glory? There was this beautiful evening Tuesday night of kind of dreaming together and sharing what all six locations have done in the last year and looking to the year ahead. It's happening. There's a baptism meeting happening now. Young people coming to faith in Christ saying, I want to be baptized. This Sunday, we will, as a church, proclaim Jesus as Lord to maybe a thousand people. Unbelievable. That's our job as a church. Just saying he's for us. He's he's set a table for us. And inviting other people to hear God's good news story for their life. Next, this table happens in the presence of my enemies. The second slide of presence is actually kind of brutal, if I'm honest. I wish that second point said absence. I wish the second point of your outline was that I could just preach to you that when you follow Jesus, there are no more enemies. The enemies just slip, slip, slip away. I wish that was the story that David said in verse 5. But instead what David says is the Lord is setting a table for us right in the presence of our enemies. That God promises I'll never leave you alone enemies, but I won't necessarily clear the deck in either. And what's an enemy? We kind of use that illustration of Chris Woods. But enemies are anything, internal or external, keeping us from experiencing the fullness of Christ. Enemies are anything, internal or external, keeping us from experiencing the fullness of Christ. So let's start first with internal enemies. Internal enemies. Sometimes we have internal places that become enemies to what the Spirit of God wants to transform in us. We have internal places, places of dysfunction we've turned to instead of transformation. It's really, really, really easy to focus on the external because we can kind of pretend we have it all figured out. But internal enemies are those things of which we've accommodated in our lives that are stealing us from places of knowing God's fullness of joy and freedom and grace. Places of dysfunction that we've turned to instead of transformation. We talked a few weeks ago that it was David's boredom that eventually sank us into, sank him, sorry, into his, his sin with Bathsheba. And then into sending her husband to the battlefront to be, to be killed. It was his boredom. David had, had taken success over every external enemy. He had victory. He had success. After the whole Saul episode, he's now ascended kingship. He's been anointed. He's a man after God's own heart. He's made a place at his table for Mephizabeth. He's doing it. He's doing the outward work of faith. And he's winning. And it's wonderful. But he hadn't dealt with places of brokenness in his heart. Places of lust. Places where he was still hungering for something different than what God had put in his hand. And what is it that destroyed David? It was his internal enemy. The lust got him. The internal brokenness. And David has to suffer greatly for this internal sin. We would love to believe that our internal enemies are invisible to anyone else. And we would love to believe that as long as they're internal, they're not really enemies of our peace. But the reality in David's life, the reality in our lives, is that internal enemies can destroy our faith. 
Internal enemies are places of brokenness I've run to instead of feasting in the presence of Christ. Things like lust or selfishness or disappointment with God. What's your internal enemy? Maybe for some of you it's just busyness. Man, my plate is so full I can't actually be present to the people God is calling me to, to disciple and to love. Maybe your internal enemy is bitterness. Maybe your internal enemy is anger or addiction. Anything distracting you from trusting God becomes an enemy of our peace. And the reality is that why internal enemies are so dangerous for us is oftentimes our internal enemies are a result of our own decisions. That's why we struggle with dealing with them. Because when I really want to deal with my internal enemy... I, I can get caught up in the shame-blame cycle and feel like, oh, this is kind of part of my fall. I started looking at that stuff, and now nobody would really know how bad it's gotten, and, you know, I get this all the time. Why didn't you tell anyone? Oh, man, if people knew my internal enemy, they just wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to accept me. Can we just get that off? Like, can we just be done with that right now? We are all sinners before an almighty God. And so when you share your brokenness with each other, you're actually closer to the freedom from the enemy. God doesn't want us to be stuck in silos of isolation or individualism. He doesn't want us to be held captive by internal enemies, even if the internal enemy is a result of our own decisions. I was just last weekend with some old friends from high school. These guys have been meeting for almost 30 years these, these guys, we'd get together every week in high school and read the Bible a little bit, mostly just share our life. It was my young life leader, though we didn't even have young life at the time. We just pulled these different guys together, guys from different parts of town, different ethnicities, white, brown, all different kind of shades, and we just started to do life together. And as we got together last weekend, one of the guys, you know, like old friends, where your stories are almost like liturgy, like you just start telling the story and you start laughing because the stories are so familiar. And they start telling the story of what, we had a, a, a sleepover at one of our buddies' house one night. And so a few of us borrowed the car of our young life leader to go get snacks, which we did. And then on the way back, one of my buddies thought it would be fun to drive into this housing development near where we're spending the night. He was going to do what was called in those days a lawn job. So like go flying in and like hit the brakes. Like this is the stuff we did in the 80s and 90s. Hit the brakes and like tear up somebody's lawn. Like not a good decision. Not a good idea. So oftentimes with internal enemies, bad decisions lead to bad decisions. So we're in this cold, we're in this huge housing development that's basically a giant loop. And then we realize it's garbage night. It's now almost midnight. And my buddy starts taking our Young Life leader's car, going around and smashing these garbage cans in the neighborhood like, like pins on a like bowling or something. Just, these things blowing up. We were laughing. Garbage everywhere. Again, it's a giant circle. We've got to go back the way we came to get out of it. We finished. And it was like, let's go again. Not a good idea. Although oftentimes bad decisions lead to bad decisions. And as we finish the loop a second time, there's a guy standing with his bathrobe and a handgun. He's in the middle of the street. He's obviously one of these neighbors that we've, you know, really made angry. And he's pointing the gun with, at us. And we're like 100 yards sitting there idling. And he's, you know, it's like, seems like a scene out of the, like the outsiders or something, you know. And we're like, what do we do? And we're like, go for it. And you know, so, <clears throat> luckily, there was no one shooting, no shooting in the making of the sermon. We got around the guy and he just, you know, kind of waved his gun at us. But to have to go back to our young life leader... And say, oh, 
in the neighborhood you do ministry, we took your car and thrashed the place to go back the next day and pick up garbage cans and to apologize to people and to try to like make an unmess of things. That's why internal enemies are so difficult because we found ourselves in great persecution in a place that we had made the decision ourselves. But we had to deal with it and come to grips with it. And so then it leads to external enemies. External enemies are, are a little bit easier to define. Things externally that are stealing my joy, robbing my peace. Some of you are like, oh man, I've got an external enemy. It's a past relationship. It's something in the workplace. It's somebody I live with. It, it, you know, it's something externally that's stealing my joy. And I wish, again, like I said, I wish this was absence of enemies, not presence. I wish we could say as a believer of Christ, there's no conflict, no enemies. And sometimes in the Old Testament, there's these pictures where God would do that. There's this story in 2 Chronicles where King Hezekiah, who is a, a contemporary of Isaiah, they're being attacked by the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria came into Israel, was taunting the believers of God, taunting God himself. The king of Assyria like, came up and was like, writing these manifestos about how God had no power. And while Hezekiah and Isaiah were trying to make a game plan, God just like, forget it, I'm done with this, and sent an angel of the Lord to just go and smite the king of Assyria. It literally just like wiped out the whole battle. And it's like, yeah, I would love that, right? If you could just like wish God to just do the smiting. Like, God, will you just go and smite this person at my workspace? You know, like, like clearly we don't really want that. But kind of, right? Like the whole enemies thing isn't great. And oftentimes God doesn't do that. Oftentimes God allows our enemies to exist because God knows that our faith is forged in the middle of real trials. God knows that our faith in him is forged in the presence of enemies. Psalm 23, we're provided for in the presence, not the absence of our enemies. And we hunger for absence, but here in the presence, God says, I will be there with you. I will make a way for you. I will feed you. I will not leave you alone. And then if we don't experience this, sometimes we can become disillusioned or bitter or distant from God himself. But God, this morning, wants you to remember that he's prepared a table in the presence of every enemy you face. So I don't know your external enemies, if it's a difficulty in a relationship right now, in the presence of a financial or health crisis that feels like a very real enemy, in the presence of struggle at work or with roommates or with friends, but no church that God is in the middle providing for you, even in the presence of your difficulties. The beautiful verse of Isaiah, Isaiah 54, said, no weapon forged against you will prevail. You will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. I love this. No weapon will prevail. Doesn't say no weapons. Doesn't say no enemies. Doesn't say no conflict. But it does say that as the heritage of the people of God, that God will be present in any enemy we face. So that, that's like, okay, I can, I can leave it there. Like internal enemies, external enemies. Like God wants us to know that in the midst of, of fighting these battles, he's going to be real. But there's a next level teaching I need, to, I need to share with you. Here's the next level teaching. If I could take the elevator down a stage. Oftentimes, your external enemies are only giving power over what internal battles that you're currently facing. So your external enemies are really oftentimes only given power over to the internal battles you're facing. And that's why, as followers of Jesus Christ, 
It's this internal battle that becomes so paramount towards our transformation. It's facing our brokenness in order to understand the Easter story is forged through Good Friday. That Christ died for my sin. That's my story. And if I want to truly worship on Easter morning, I need to deal with my brokenness and far from Godness of Good Friday to know that he came to redeem not just them, but me. This is the story that God wants to do. To remove the veneer of our external lives and, and to deal with internal brokenness, any enemy of peace. And to, to just speak into that place. God says, stop giving unfiltered access to your heart to an internal or external enemy. You can run if you want to, says Jesus, but I will be present to you to deal with your stuff. Like, you need to go there. Like, we can just believe that, like, time heals all wounds, but... You know, what's not transformed is transferred. What's not healed is handed down. And so if I haven't dealt with, you know, past grief, past trauma, past hurt, in order that Christ might make me more healed, more sound, then oftentimes I'm not being realistic. That that becomes an enemy of the peace. God doesn't just want to give us peace. He wants to transform us. In the midst of any enemy we face, internal or external. There's this beautiful passage from Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, of course, tells the story of rebuilding Israel's wall, rebuilding the city of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, in the midst of external conflict that never subsides. And instead of waiting for the conflict to disappear, in Nehemiah, they literally build with one hand with a spear in the other. And I love that. Because oftentimes, church, if I can challenge you, sometimes we get caught in this thing of like, yeah, I'll go deeper with my faith, I'll go deeper with my devotional life only once all the absence of conflict or absence of busyness or absence of... No, but in Nehemiah, there's these enemies that keep trying to get their attention. And Nehemiah is like, no, we're going to keep rebuilding, keep rebuilding, even while the enemy persists. And Nehemiah 6.10 says, I prayed to God and I said, make my hands stronger, Lord. Make my hands stronger. It's like the picture on the front of your bulletin. I love it. But make my hands stronger. But as I'm trying to deal with my enemies, internal and external, as I try to rebuild and focus my life of faith, I know there's going to be distractions. God, will you, will you make my hands stronger that in any challenge I faced, you'll be present to me? That was the thing with Chris Woods. The reality is we, we got back at Chris. I could tell you a story on another Sunday of an epic get back at the bully thing made for like a Disney movie. It was epic. But really, that wasn't the biggest thing. God wanted to change my heart. I was insecure and selfish and broken, focusing on the veneer of a very superficial upbringing. And God said, you need to figure out who you are and who I am. So the Chris Woods thing had power over me because there was internal battles I needed to face. I needed to go on a God quest that God would be number one in my life. And then God saved my soul before my 18th birthday at Young Life Camp in Northern California. In the presence of your enemies, God wants to do a work in your life, finally, to provide for you. This is the last clause of Psalm 23. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. In the Old Testament, oil was reserved for persons prepared for an audacious audacious mission. You are anointed to face a world with very real enemies, internal and external. So in the Old Testament, the, the, the prophets or the leaders would anoint often just a king or a prophet himself. It was just reserved for the holy people 
But in the New Testament, God says that anyone that's a follower of Jesus has been anointed to know that the Spirit of God lives in them. This is 2 Corinthians 1 verse 21. Now it's God who makes both of, you, both of us and you stand firm in Christ. He's anointed us. He set a seal of ownership on us and put a spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. 1 John 2 says, the anointing of the teaching you received is in you. You have been provided for. David says, you anoint my head with oil. And David had been literally anointed as a young man, but he's saying here, metaphorically, you have provided for me in the midst of adversaries. You have given me a a full cup. Our full cup will not come from the absence of enemies, but the presence of any enemy we face. Our anointing as a follower of Jesus allows us to see that our cup is full. We want to be moving from full plates and this euphemism from just feeling overmatched and exhausted to say, because of who God says I am, my cup is full. I've been provided for. I can fight while I work. I can invest in in trying to be all that God has made me to be. My cup is full. God, fill our hearts this morning. Fill our cups. I've got to ask you, church, is your cup full? Are you dining with Christ? Or are you focused on your enemies? Do you want this kind of life, this fullness of Christ, this joy of salvation? This is Holy Week. And so I might encourage you this week to really pray this week, God, what's an enemy of my peace? Would you pray about that? Maybe you feel moved to fast this week, and every time you hunger, whether you skip a meal fast, or you do a sun-up to sundown fast, or you do 24-hour fast, that every time you hunger, you might turn to prayer. God, increase my faith. Remove any enemies towards this fullness of you. Let me see my cup is full. Someone came up after the first service and said, I want that, but I feel like there's a hole in me. How do I get that fullness of cup This is the mystery of faith, that God longs to fill your cup. And though many of us just kind of treat Jesus as kind of a part of our whole life, he longs to fill us fully with his spirit. Tim Keller says, most people want Jesus as a consultant rather than a king, and he does not come that way. He comes to change us, transform us, do a new work that we might be painting his love and glory into the world for all the world to see. He's in the business of transforming us to full cups. I told this Chris Woods story the first time a couple years ago when preaching through Nehemiah, and I reached out to Chris Woods. Chris Woods has had a transformation. Chris Woods later went back to be a teacher in the district where he was the chief bully. He later became the principal of the very high school where he bullied me and some others so relentlessly. He's currently the the assistant dean of superintendents in Tumwater School District. And Chris Woods said this. He says, Scott, it's great to hear from you. Thanks for the message. I would like to apologize for my actions when we were in high school. And if any of you have been bullied or enemies, you're like, yes, finally, like 30 years later. I am constantly, says Chris, I'm constantly reminded of God's grace because he's transformed my life. I went from a lost, selfish, and hurtful person to someone who's been changed by Jesus Christ. I think when I was in high school, I saw something in you and some others I didn't have, and I didn't know what it was until later in life. Jed, one of the guys he went to school with, walked alongside me, and God used him to get to me. Who is God using for you to be a blessing into someone else's life. 
Chris continues, I found a real joy in serving the Lord, and my wife and I have been involved in Young Life for almost 20 years. And God has used us to share the gospel to many high school and middle school students. I believe God has brought me back to Capitol High School to be an example of his love and grace. It's amazing how God works, and he can transform anyone. I am blessed that he has changed my life. God bless you, Chris Woods. It's a good story, right? This is the Easter story. But God came not just to get us a get-out-of-jail-free pass, that he came to transform us and change us and make us more alive, to take enemies, internal, external, that are stealing our peace and our joy and remind us our cup is full. So what we're going to do right now is something a little bit different. I'm going to ask Allie and Dave to come. They're going to sing a song that they've prepared. It's a beautiful song called Sovereign Over Us. And you have a bulletin in front of you. If you just turn to that now, I'm going to ask you to do a response. At the bottom of your bulletin, it says, God, take the enemy of blank. It can be external or internal, but I do want you to fill it out. And I do want you to name it. We have pens at the table here, both tables in the middle. God, take the enemy of blank, an enemy that's stealing your peace, and deliver me from their hands. My cup overflows. And I want you to just, as Allie and Dave sing, I'm going to ask you to write the enemy that you're facing, or a couple, and then... If you're willing to take this step, you're going to write it down. And it's really just for you. You can fold it. But we're going to have anointing stations. We have people in the middle and down front. And what you'll do here is you're going to lay your enemy down. And you're going to receive, if you're open to it, an anointing of the Holy Spirit to remind you of who Jesus says you are. To remind you that he likes you and wants to be with you. To remind you as you head into Holy Week that God came for you so that your enemies would no longer have power over you. We have just, it's just olive oil. And and the people, we have asked leaders from the church. We have people, uh, Ruth and others that are going to be doing it. You guys can come to your anointing station. We have pastors. We have deacons. We have local advisory team members. These are the leaders of your church. We'll have one at the bottom of each step here, one at the bottom of each step here. And you can just lay your enemy down next to the anointing station. And if you're open to it, they just want to remind you that the Spirit of God has already anointed you and put an anointing on your hand. And you're not earning anything now, but the covenant of, the, of all believers, the priesthood of all believers in the New Testament is that Christ has given us His Spirit so that the enemies won't have power over us And we would live as men and women redeemed by him that our cup would be full. Let me pray over our response and we'll do this now. Lord Jesus, thank you for this church. Thank you for your heart. We pray as we respond in faith that you would remind us that you are doing a new work in us. Let us cast aside the enemies, internal, external, which is stealing joy and respond in faith. We want to be more like you. In your great name we pray. Amen. Band's going to sing. You can fill out your enemy when the time is right. Drop your enemy near a station and receive anointing of oil.